Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 98. This week we're talking with Jim DeBizer about SOFIA, our flying telescope that's currently studying the southern skies from Christchurch, New Zealand. Jim is the science planning and instrument support manager for SOFIA. He explains why SOFIA goes to New Zealand and tells us about some of the exciting observations the team has planned while they're there. Now let's listen to our conversation with Jim DeBizer. So Jim, welcome. I'm excited to hear about your work with Sophia. Who or what is Sophia to start us off? Well, Sophia is the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, mm-hmm. and it's a heavily modified Boeing 747 aircraft um, that they have modified to put a 20-ton telescope in the back. Oh, wow. 20 tons. Right. So we uh, fly this telescope at very high altitudes, mm-hmm. and I'll get to in a minute why we fly at high altitudes. Uh, And then once we get up there, we open up a door on the side of the fuselage of the plane. It's kind of like a rolling garage door. And we peer out. And it's about a 2.7 meter diameter telescope, which means the hole in the side of the plane is about 10 feet by 16 feet. So rather large hole in the side of the plane, but it's aerodynamically stable and it stays up and we observe space from high altitudes. Okay. Yeah. So when you say heavily modified plane to carry a telescope, you're not kidding, huh? That's that's right. So we fly at those high altitudes because um, we're interested in observing the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And that's beyond what your eye can see. Mm-hmm. It's what we perceive as heat uh, with our senses. And so we're trying to look at the heat signatures of objects in space that don't give off their own light. Okay. So uh, it's like the images you see with certain cameras, right? That show like the body and the hot spots on the body. Or that's correct. That that's kind of correct. Thing? Yeah. Uh, the thing about the atmosphere is it absorbs infrared light that's coming oh, from okay. space in the water vapor in the atmosphere. So you can't see that down here. You so have to you get can't up above see it, it from the ground, yeah, right? Okay. So when we fly into the atmosphere, when we fly into the stratosphere, we fly above ninety nine point nine percent of the atmospheric water vapor. Oh, great. Okay. So that gives us a clear, unobstructed view of a l- large range of infrared wavelengths that are not able to be observed from the ground. Very cool. So that's Sophia. That's and Sophia. What makes Sophia special? How did you end up working on this? Where did you come from originally? Well, I got my PhD at University of Florida in uh, 2000 in astronomy. And uh, right after that, I ended up taking a job in uh, the foothills of the Chilean Andes, Cerro oh, wow. uh, Tololo Inter-American Observatory. Huh. I was there for about four years and then I got hired by another observatory um, called Gemini Observatory, which is an eight-meter telescope that's run by the U.S. Along the way, I've always been involved in astronomical instrumentation. So I've been Mm. working on mid-infrared instruments my entire career from the time I was a graduate student working in a lab. I see. Uh, So I was involved at the level of working at these observatories, working on their instruments, helping astronomers take their data. And that's why Sophia said, hey, you know, we're going to be flying our first light flights uh, within about a year. Mm-hmm. Our first instrument is going to be a infrared camera, just like the one you're using uh, or you're working with at Gemini. Uh, how about you come and help us get the first light? So I moved to California and have been based here at NASA Ames for about the last 10 years and um, worked with the uh, University of Cornell team that built the first light instrument for 
Sophia to get it on the plane, Mm -hmm. get it working, get it commissioned on the telescope and get the telescope working and Mm -hmm. playing nicely with it. And I uh, was involved in the first light science, and it was a very exciting time. Okay, and, uh, so you've been on Sophia from from the start. Yes, I've been on it for a long time, and uh, I've tra- transitioned uh, a few years ago into science operations management, and that's kind of where I am now. Okay, and we want to get to that. How do you plan the science? And yes, so, another interesting topic. Yeah. Yes. So we have Cassandra also from the Sophia team here in the studio. You work on communications for Sophia. Do you know all the backstories of your scientists, like Jim? I know some of them. Yeah. Uh, I can't say I know all of them, so I'm learning more about them every day. <laughs> yeah, it's great to get to know the people. Yeah, I've seen mm-hmm. that first light image. It's, Jupiter was, I believe, the first thing that Sophia observed, and it's, it's really cool to hear the backstory of how that image came to be. Yeah, right. Did you think you'd end up, Jim, working in things like this? Were you a kid who played with telescopes? And Yeah, so as a as a child, I was always very interested in science, and I grew up in a rather poor family, but my parents always, for birthdays or Christmas, end up being able to get me a secondhand chemistry set <laughs> or a nice. telescope or a um, microscope or something like that. Yeah. You know, And so they fed my science, and uh, I was always, as a tween teen, outside in the backyard with telescopes looking at things, and I, was, I really liked it. Um, so... Yeah, I always kind of had an idea that I was going to be a scientist. I didn't mm-hmm. really know what direction it was going to go. Yeah, yeah. But nobody was surprised when you went to work for NASA. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so have you flown on Sophia then? Is that part of your job? Right. So I've I've flown more than 50 missions on Sophia, wow. and I was on the vast majority of the the first flights, the you know, first mm-hmm. several flights where we got the first light images and first science, uh, and I was involved in reducing and analyzing and publishing that data. A lot of our our imagery that Cassandra was talking about mm-hmm. came from coming off the plane, sleeping for two hours, and <laughs> frantically trying to create nice-looking images to <laughs> release <laughs> wow. to everybody. So Quick turnaround. Yeah. All right. What is it like up there, though, to either of you? Because, Cassandra, you've flown on Sophia, right? Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's similar to a commercial aircraft. Like, uh-huh. It's pressurized. You can walk around. There's a seatbelt sign if it's bumpy. Mm-hmm. In other ways, it's completely different. There's all these computer stations to control the telescope and the oh, instrument okay. and guide cameras so you can see the stars that we're looking at and or planets or whatever it is that night. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fascinating. It's also a lot louder colder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Less climate control. <laughs> well, <laughs> some of the instruments, and maybe Jim can talk a little bit more about this, they need to be cold so okay, they keep the I cabin see. cool just to help keep the instruments cold. From the perspective of an astronomer, the plane is very similar to the control room of any other telescope I've worked at. Mm. I mean, it has okay. all the basic components. So after takeoff and once you finally start like getting into the groove of taking data, it seems very, very familiar, and you kind of forget that you're on a plane until, oh, really? as Cassandra said, you know, you have turbulence, and the pilot tells you to sit down and put on your seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, we tend to fly through smooth airspace intentionally, but oh, okay, sometimes right. unavoidable. Yeah, they tell us to sit down, like any flight, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Is that part of your job, Jim, actually, to decide where the plane flies to do the science it needs to do? Yeah, so part of the science planning is to try to decide how we can get the most science in flight. Uh-huh. And Sophia 
is a telescope that is open access, which means astronomers around the world can apply to get their favorite targets observed and get data uh, for whatever project they want. It's a competitive thing. We get a lot more proposals for time than we can ever accept. And then it's it's the job of the science planning to basically find out how to efficiently create flights to get the most science for those astronomers. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's complicated by the fact that the observatory moves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's complicated by the fact that the observatory uh, has a telescope that only looks at one side of the plane. This this 10 by 16 foot hole I was telling you about right. is off the left side of the plane. So the telescope has some movement up and down. It can move from about 30 degrees above the horizon to about 60 degrees above the horizon. But if I'm looking at a target in the east and suddenly I want to look at something in the south, you have to turn the entire plane in order to point to that. So that means we're flying in one direction for somewhere between 40 minutes to three hours usually is how long we stay on a single target, Mm -hmm. observing it, analyzing it. And then we have to turn onto a new leg. and then we have to try to figure out how to put all these legs together so that we take off where we or we land where we took off, oh, which right. is at Good. the Armstrong Flight Research Center. So here in California, here yeah. in Southern California, yeah. So it's a complicated issue, and it requires a fair amount of computation, a fair amount of uh, manual labor. But we do it. It's a yeah. it's, it's a very interesting process. So what could be a typical path and how does that line up with the science that you could do? Is there a typical? There's thing? no, I wouldn't say there's any typical path. Uh, we can't fly over Mexico. We're not cleared to do so, but mm-hmm. we can fly over Canada. So we typically, I, I'd say if there's a typical thing, we typically fly either east to go over the continental U.S. or west into the Pacific. Now, one of the reasons, well, we'll get to this in a second about New Zealand, but in the summers in the U.S., Flying over the central Midwest of the United States, you have a lot of thunderheads. You have a lot of oh. these uh, storm cloud type yeah. situations. Turbulence. And we, we get a ton of turbulence. Okay. And so we often these, often these cloud heads can be so high that they can actually be in our way. And air traffic control will route us around it, which means we have to stop observing <laughs> objects to, in order yeah. to, uh, to be safe. That's one of the reasons why we go to the south, uh, go to the New Zealand during our summer, is that uh, down there in New Zealand, it's not summer, right. uh, and they don't have the same kind of uh, weather issues that okay. we have here. So in, it's better for Sophia to fly in the winter, wherever that may be. <laughs> yes, there's multiple reasons why it's better in the winter. The air is drier. You uh-huh. know, uh, in the winter, your skin gets chapped and stuff because yep. it can't hold as much moisture. So the, the air is drier, and that's good for infrared right. astronomy, as that I said. The whole, point, right? uh, the whole point is to get above mm-hmm. the water vapor. So. Right, exactly. So you and guys are about to leave for New Zealand, aren't you? We are. Um, at the end of May, uh, we will be heading down. Um, I think I think actually Sophia might officially leave in early June, but some of us go down a bit early to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. And what's it like down there? Because people here in New Zealand, and we all think, oh, so lucky, but you guys are hard at work under kind of extreme conditions, aren't you? Yeah, well, it's it's very dark, which is, you know, another good thing for Sophia. We fly at night, so mm-hmm. we have really long nights. Um, cold, dry. Uh, the nice thing about New Zealand, though, is it's very cold and dry where we fly, but on the ground it's actually a pretty moderate climate considering it's winter because they're, they're such a close proximity to the ocean, mm-hmm. so it keeps everything pretty moderated considering how far south we actually are. 
And we're operating out of a commercial airport. We are at the U.S. Antarctic Programs facility, and it's shared, like, the runway with um, Christchurch International Airport is connected. Um, so the U.S. Antarctic facility is kind of on, off to the side, but we end up taxiing out uh, um, next to all the commercial planes. Oh, yeah, So funny. that's really different from what we operate, how we operate here, mm-hmm. um, when we kind of have our own our own NASA facility out at Palmdale. Um, so sometimes I think from what I've seen in the past is there's a time where we really need to take off because our, our flights are, are planned down to the minute or even sometimes the second. Oh, wow. And they want us to take off maybe a few minutes early because if we wait, then, then a commercial airplane is going to taxi out and we'll get stuck behind them and then we're too late. Oh, is wow. that right, Tim? That's right. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting um, factor that gets uh, yeah. we have to account for in New Zealand that we don't have to. Um, interesting. Yeah. So that just shows how many details you guys have to think about. So it's really precisely timed, the, these flights. Huh? Yeah, if we get off ground track from the outset like that by more than a handful of minutes, we could be chasing our our objects, all, losing time on our objects all night long just because oh, of yeah. the, 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 the nature of the the way the sky turns and the how long targets are up and how long they're available to us. And right. yeah, it's very important that we take off on time. Mm-hmm. Right, because if we take off, if we're off time, then the object could be too high or too low in the sky for us to see, is that, is that right? Yeah, it, it could be rising or setting, which means it will go below that el- those elevation limits that I told you yeah. the telescope are capable of doing. So Cassandra, yeah. you said something earlier about um, different Different things you can see in the southern hemisphere. Can you remind us how that works? What's what's different down there? Well, it's uh, you can see different stars in a different part of the sky. So yeah. um, the Southern Cross is very high in the sky. The farther south you go, um, we can't see that here. That constellation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but things like the North Star can't see that down there. Right, right. So um, we can also see um, other galaxies, satellite galaxies to ours, the large and small Magellanic clouds. So we cool. do observations of those um, frequently from New Zealand. All right, cool. Yeah, being somebody who grew up looking at the sky with a telescope in his backyard in the U.S. and then having lived in Chile mm-hmm. for almost a decade, I really feel that the people who live in the Northern Hemisphere got really gypped. Ah, uh, really? <laughs> um, there is some miraculous... There are some miraculous objects in the southern skies that you can see with your naked eyes that you can't see really? in the northern hemisphere. And Cassandra sort of uh, alluded to a couple of them. I think one of the most fascinating things, and I used to spend time um, on the summit in Chile outside just staring up at them, the Magellanic Clouds are just amazing. What are they again? So these are two galaxies that are actually galaxies that are in orbit around our own galaxy. Oh, okay. And I think the vast majority of people who live in the northern hemisphere don't even realize that we are constantly being, you know, sort of through these satellites that are constantly in ro- uh, rotation around our own galaxy because mm. they don't they don't see them, them you know, in yeah. the northern hemisphere. Um, but there are there are closest galactic neighbors, and so in terms of people who want to study galaxies, you can't do anything better than these oh, right. really really close galaxies that are going around our own galaxy. Yeah. Now, when I say they're going around our own galaxy, you can't see them moving. They're, they're mm-hmm. take, they take hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of years to go around our galaxy. Okay. Um, but they are gravitationally bound to our galaxy, and they are maybe about a tenth the mass of our own galaxy, and, or I mean, sorry, a hundredth the mass of our own galaxy and about tenth the size. Mm-hmm. 
but they're really interesting environments. And you can see them with your naked eyes. They look like That's clouds cool. wow. uh, in the sky. That's cool. Man. I never felt bad about my life until now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Realizing we're being... missing out on so much. Man. And then the other thing is the, the galactic center of our, the center of our own galaxy. In the northern hemisphere, it gets barely above the horizon. And it can be hard to see, especially if you live in an area where there's city lights that make the horizon glow. Uh In the southern hemisphere, the galactic center uh, goes right about over your head. Mm -hmm. And so it's this this view of the sky where it's almost bisected in half by the Milky Way, this gorgeous sort of line of stars. And then you have the really dark... Uh, coal sack where there's no stars that uh, you can see with your eyes that are where the center of the galaxy is oh, really? right above your head. Wow. And um, it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. Amazing. You know, I was in Chile not too long ago and I was waiting to see something like this, but it was the full moon. Oh, I so missed it. It was too bright to yeah. see the stars. Yeah. 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 So can you see things like this in Christchurch where Sophia flies from? Well, it's a city, so there is mm-hmm. some light pollution. Um, but if you go out into the country, um, like far out, out away from the city, you yeah. can see a spectacular sky. And Sophia ends up flying quite often very far south towards the South Pole, mm-hmm. and we're over the ocean, and it's it's very dark. And just poke your head, like put your face against the window on Sophia, and kind of look out. And yeah, yeah, you must see as many stars as a person could possibly see anywhere. It seems. Actually, the problem becomes with if you're using. If you're looking with your eyes, not you know, yeah. science instruments, but if you're looking with your eyes, um, we go so far south uh, towards the Antarctic Circle that we get very bright aurora. Oh, no way. That fill the entire sky and oh, make man. it very difficult to actually see the stars. Man, that's such a problem. They are beautiful. <laughs> we sure. don't observe aurora, but it's kind of a nice little side sideshow for yeah, yeah. us. <laughs> sideshow. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. So you just mentioned instruments. You said there are different instruments on different flights of Sophia, right? How do they choose what's going to fly? And That's right. That's, that kind of folds into the science planning. Once we know the um, observations that we want to take for the astronomers um, for the year, we try to use our computer models to find out what times of the year are best for observing uh, objects in, in that, in that uh, pool of mm-hmm. targets. We can only have one instrument on the telescope at a time. Uh, so by doing this sort of complex uh, calculation, we can find out when's best to put each instrument on. And so for the southern deployment uh, to New Zealand, we have chosen two instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the GREAT instrument, which is a uh, German uh, spectrometer that observes at far infrared wavelengths. Okay. And we have the Hawk instrument, which is a uh, far infrared polarimeter. Polarimeter. Yeah. What's that? So a polarimeter is a specialized type of instrument that can analyze the light in a way that gives you information on what is happening in the magnetic fields in an object. Oh, wow. So their orientation, uh-huh. um, their structure. Wow. Uh, Does that, do you visualize a magnetic field? Do you see? You can actually field? see a magnetic field wow. once you've uh, analyzed the data from a, from a polarimeter. Oh, yeah. cool. And so... That's one of the reasons why we're bringing Hawk down to the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, these wavelengths that we're looking at with Hawk, um, this is our first opportunity to ever look at them with a polarimeter. Um, those uh, wavelengths, those particular wavelengths those, of light, those, or those wavelengths, from yeah. a particular source. Right. Well, it's it's our it's our first chance to observe. 
targets that we want to understand the magnetic fields around, including uh-huh. the galactic center, okay. uh, star-forming regions that we can see from the southern hemisphere. Um, and this is our opportunity to do that with, with Hawk. What will you learn by knowing about the magnetic fields about the galactic center? What will that tell you? In the galactic center, it, there's an interesting interplay in terms of things are spiraling into the black hole in the center of our galaxy, but there's also supernova that have gone off that have cleared out areas, but there's also star formation. Mm -hmm. And all that in some way is either affected or directed by the magnetic fields. And so by understanding what the magnetic field orientations and geometries are, we might be able to understand those processes more. Hmm. How cool. Neat. And then the other instrument, GREAT, you said? Yes. So GREAT is a spectrometer. Yeah. um, And that's a way of analyzing light from an object to find out what its chemistry, what Uh it's made out of. Okay. And also uh, what the dynamics of the material is in a target. So what I mean by that is we might look at a far-off star with the spectrometer and find that it has a circumstellar disk around it because we can see emission from it from molecules that we expect to be in circumstellar disks. Hmm. And we can actually also see them rotating around the star. So we can get chemistry and we can get dynamics from an instrument like GREAT just by analyzing the light. Wow. There's so much information in light. That always gets me. Yeah. I've seen, I mentioned it was a periodic table and each element had its own what they call a spectral line. It's basically its own like like light fingerprint. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what GREAT's analyzing. Right, Jim? It's like That's right. Yep. They can tell you like what molecules there and then like how fast is it moving and in what direction. Yeah, wow. So what are you looking at with that exactly? So with great, um, the targets are similar. Uh, we wanna look at the galactic center. Okay. We wanna yeah. we wanna study the actual material spiraling into the to the black hole and see, yeah. you know. Uh, w- how it's doing that, you know, what its, what, is, what its structure and its orientation is as it spirals into the central black hole of our galaxy. Um, is, that, is that why Hawk and Great are the two instruments on this deployment? Are they kind of working together to answer questions about the same targets? In, in this regard, with yeah. the Galactic Center, it, it will be a nice complement to each other to okay. have Great and Hawk, where one is looking at the chemistry and dynamics, another one's looking at the magnetic fields. It will give us a very complete picture mm-hmm. of what's going on in the Galactic Center. And I think we also have plans to make a new map of 30 Doradus or the Tarantula Nebula. Is that right? Right. So um, these Magellanic Clouds uh, are the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud. Um, in the Large Magellanic Cloud, there is a um, very active star-forming region called 30 Doradus, which is also known as the Tarantula Nebula. Hmm. And um, this is the site of a lot of ongoing star formation. And um, astronomers are interested in this region in particular because the Magellanic Clouds have a what we call a very low metallicity environment. What do we mean by that? Hmm. Um, At the beginning of the universe, almost all the universe was hydrogen and helium, and it took the formation of that helium and hydrogen into stars, and inside those stars, different processes created oxygen and carbon and nitrogen and heavier Mm -hmm. and heavier and heavier elements that all happened in the processes in the bowels of stars, basically. Um, and when stars die, they, they blow that material over and it gets incorporated in the next generation of stars and then yeah, the next generation yeah. of stars. And so with every passage of a population or a generation of stars, 
we get more enrichment of the interstellar medium. Mm -hmm. And that goes into the next population of stars. So the Milky Way has a certain metallicity. Um, the, the, the Magellanic Clouds have a much lower metallicity. So by studying star formation in the Magellanic Clouds, we can actually study them as a proxy for what star formation was like in the early universe mm -hmm. when the metallicities were naturally in all the universe much lower. Okay. And before so those elements built up. Before they in, built up and really enriched yeah. the stellar medium like they have in the Milky Way. Yeah, okay. So this is a way of we study the large Magellanic clouds and the star formation within it. We study the star formation within our own Milky Way and we try to compare how do those environments affect how stars form and how they affect the next generation of stars, mm -hmm. which is really, really cool. It certainly yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, sort of getting to sort of how the universe started, how stars like our sun formed. We can, we're studying how new large stars are forming, and that can tell us, like, you know, how stars like our sun form or other smaller mass stars in some cases. Yeah, yeah was star formation more efficient when metallicities were a lot lower? Did uh, massive star formation have the same effects on the, uh, on, on the feedback on the environment as in our own galaxy? Yes. Yeah. So you understand better how these systems form, where they might be going, perhaps. And star formation in general. Yeah. So you've mentioned star formation. We've talked about black holes, other exciting things that seem really different one from the other and all super interesting. That That's what I find fascinating about this work. You guys do so much different science. We haven't even talked about one of the coolest things that is not visible with your naked eye in the southern hemisphere but is the brightest infrared object in all of the sky what is that, that isn't a solar system object. What is it? And that's the object called Eta Carina. Hmm. And so Eta Carina is this very, very supermassive binary star that is old. Okay. Um, the primary of the uh, most massive star of the binary is about 200 times the mass of our sun. Oh, wow. And, this, and, the, and its companion is about somewhere between 30 and 80 times the mass of our sun. Oh, wow. So they're both they're huge. super, super huge. Uh, the primary is getting very, very late in its life where mm. the thermonuclear energy in its core is not very efficient anymore. And it's puffing up oh. so that its outer layers are just barely being held on by gravity. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, stars sort of stay together between two forces, gravity pulling the material down mm -hmm. and heat energy trying to puff it up. And these these stars like this one are so unstable that they actually erupt where hmm. something will happen inside the star and the outer layers of the star will basically explode and fly off. Oh, wow. um, Is that anything like uh, the sun does with solar flares or something? A much, much larger mm -hmm. scale though. So the, the primary star watch I told you is about 200 solar masses yeah. now, um, lost about 30 solar masses of material in one eruptive event in the 1800s. Oh, wow. And it became so bright from that eruption that uh, people could see it as the second brightest star in the sky oh, in the wow. 1800s. And over the course of weeks, it started fading away and faded away from being a visible star altogether. Huh. Um, but since then, the material has grown and expanded. Uh, the, 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 the outer layers of that star have ballooned out, they've cooled down, larger molecules have condensed out of that material, dust has condensed out of that material, and now it's this huge nebula mm. that is so bright and being heated by this very, very hot, massive star in that center, um, yeah. we see it as this super, super bright thing in the sky. Wow. 
And um, since 1940, it started getting brighter and brighter. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting target for us. What we're specifically going to do um, on this uh, flight series down in New Zealand when we observe Adakar is we're going to look for signs of eruptions that happened prior to this great eruption in 1800s. There are very thin shells of material that have come off of the star in earlier epochs. Um, And by looking at those shells, we're looking basically back in time at earlier events. And with great, we can look at the chemistry in these shells. Mm -hmm. And by looking at the different shells, we can see how the chemistry of these shells evolve over time, how the dust forms out of it, how the how the, the denser molecules coalesce out of that material that came off of the, of the star. That's crazy. It sounds like you're describing the thinnest little eggshell of dust. How far away around another star? And you're able to see that and, yep, and yep. learn from it. That's crazy. Yep. Awesome. So that's super far away, right? Do you have Sophia studying anything in the solar system closer to home? Adakar is about 7,500 light years away. So, yeah, it's it's in our own galaxy. Okay. Um, I was talking about the Large Magellanic Clouds. They're more like 200,000 uh, light years away. Oh, wow. Um, but those are our closest mm-hmm. uh, satellite galaxies. Andromeda, which is our closest galaxy that's a big galaxy like our own, is something like 2.5 million light years away. So um, wow. if you I want see. to come closer to home... Um, we do have probably the closest object that we're going to be observing is uh, Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. And um, cool. what's going to be cool about this is um, we're going to observe Titan in what we call an occultation. Mm-hmm. And an occultation is an event that's kind of like an eclipse. It's when a body in our solar system moves in front of a star and sort of extinguishes the light from that star. Mm-hmm. And um, we can learn a lot about an object from it moving in front of a star. If we have something like an asteroid that doesn't have an atmosphere at all, when the edge of of the asteroid reaches that star, the star's light winks out completely Mm -hmm. and just kind of drops immediately. If we look at an object like Titan, where it has an atmosphere, as as the atmosphere, the outer edges of the atmosphere start to go in front of the star, the light gets scattered out of your... Um, out of the the path of light that's coming to you. And so it gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as it goes into the deeper and deeper parts of the atmosphere. So rather than having a quick drop off of light, the light slowly declines. And so we study that decline of the light. And that tells us a lot about, one, how high the atmosphere is and Mm -hmm. how thick the atmosphere is. Right, right. And the interesting thing about Titan is Titan is thought to have seasons, just like the Earth has seasons. And they would like to know, does the thickness of the atmosphere, does the height of the atmosphere of Titan change as a function of the seasons? Okay. Um, and so that's one of the things that we'll be doing uh, this occultation experiment um, yeah. on Titan. Like, like an eclipse. It's, it's like it's, an eclipse. It's Titan eclipsing some distant star that you'll choose, right? Yeah, but it's, it's yeah. actually um, unlike an eclipse like of the, of the say, the moon, when mm-hmm. the when the when there's a lunar eclipse, you see it basically over most of the Earth. When you have a solar eclipse, you see it over a very small path of totality, right? Like right? we saw last summer, right? Yeah. So for Titan, which is a much smaller body, uh-huh. and it's eclipsing this star, you can imagine that the path of totality of Titan is very very tiny. So we're talking, you know, hundreds of miles uh, dot uh-huh. that is going across the surface of the Earth at 
close to 100,000 miles per hour. Oh, my gosh. And so we are in Sofia flying at Mach 0.85, which is about, you know, a little less than 600 miles per hour. And we have to try to intercept that shadow (laughs) as it's crossing the face of the Earth. And we have successfully done it with Pluto. We've successfully done it with Triton. Uh, we have successfully done it with a Kuiper Belt object called MU69, which was only thought to be 30 kilometers wide, which is that a very, is very crazy. tiny How big target. can that shadow be when it reaches us? We very, have, very what, small. Like two seconds for MU69? That's the new really? horizon. For MU69, totality was one and a half seconds, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So you can't afford to miss any fraction of that. You can't miss it. Wow. And ideally with something any of these shadows, but particularly when it's bigger, we want to be in the center, right? Like we don't want to catch the edge. Uh-huh. So that further complicates the timing. Wow. Yeah, if you, if you get it right in the center, then you also get a good idea of, um, you get the best idea of what the diameter of the target is oh, or yeah, how okay. big the, the atmosphere is. If, you, if you're if you off center, then you're only getting up, up, you're bisecting it only through part way. So you're not getting the size of the object or you're not getting the full height of the atmosphere yeah. or something. I see, yeah. But that's the bonus of being on Sophia is that we're moving and they work to calculate where the center is and then yeah. we fly through it. Fly right through it, right. Yeah, we have a satellite phone on board the plane, and there'll be people who are actually taking data up until moments before the occultation event and feeding us updated calculations of where that shadow is going to be on the Earth. And we have to, in real time, work with the pilots to correct our course to try to intercept the shadow when when we can. My gosh. And there's winds, and so the winds can slow you down, and then they can start speeding you up, and so the pilots are... We have a, one of our mission directors is sort of monitoring our planned path and then where we're supposed to be mm-hmm. and working with the pilots like, oh, we're getting ahead of our plan. Oh, we're behind it. And so they wow. kind of adjust our speed to keep us like right on to the second. Wow. We get that center of the shadow. Is it really hectic in these final moments just before totality? Yes. Calculating quickly, yes. change it. Yeah, high pressure situation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah, I was, I was on the MU69 flight really? sharing some updates on social media. Oh, cool. And I was listening in to the pilots and the mission director and the scientists and this debate over, you know, we're too slow, now we're too fast. We have to get there, we have to get there, you know, at the second. Because I think yeah. with Pluto we had, what, 90 seconds? About 100 seconds of totality with Pluto, that's right. Because yeah. it was a... Larger object, larger shadow, but yeah. MU69 was so small oh my gosh. that we had a very, very small window of time. But um, Titan's big, so it should be a little less nerve-wracking. It's yeah. not one second. A little more leeway there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many seconds we have for Titan, Jim? I haven't. Um, I don't I don't actually know. No. Okay. I, I would imagine it's... it's be of the order of Pluto, I would Yeah. A mm-hmm. hundred whole seconds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with all the downtime? <laughs> It'll be a luxury. Right? <laughs> totally. That's so cool. Wow. Oh, the other thing that we have in the Southern Hemisphere um, that we'll try to observe is uh, Supernova 1987A. This is a supernova that went off in 1987, hence the name. Figure. Um, <laughs> but it was in the Large Magellanic Cloud, and so it's one of the closest supernovas that have gone off in our lifetime. And what's great about it is um, because the Large Mag- Magellanic Clouds are so close, we are watching the evolution of the supernova remnant, this material that got blown off of the star in the supernova. We're watching the evolution of it happen over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sophia is going to contribute to that study 
Um, it's been monitoring it for several years now, but they're also going to try to observe it on this New Zealand trip as well. Hmm. And so it's really cool because you can watch the um, dust forming out of the ejecta. You can watch it moving out in sort of this shock front in all directions, oh, this sort wow. of circular shock front. It's hitting previous uh, material that existed in the surroundings, and it's lighting up like fireworks in the places where it's hitting the surrounding clumps and stuff in the medium. It's just a very cool thing to to be able to witness because mm-hmm. supernova are, usu- are, are usually very, very far away. They're usually in galaxies external galaxies very, very far away. And okay. so we don't have this kind of ability to see them in this kind of detail. Yeah. And so we're very lucky to be living at a time where one just went off and we have the instrumentation to resolve, to see the structure, to see it at this kind of resolution and watch it uh, change. Yeah. Because we observed the supernova last year as well, right? Well, I think we've observed it every year every. we've gone down to New Zealand oh, really? so far with different instruments. But oh, yeah. 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 So you get to see it changing? Yeah, you get to see it changing, and it's um, yeah. We, uh, I'm I'm am part of that uh, of one of those programs where we have been monitoring it for a couple of decades now, wow. and you watch how it all changes as a function of time, and it's very cool. Yeah, that is really cool because I think I think of a lot of astronomy as like static, you know, because I see photos of <laughs> celestial objects, whatever. But to think that you know, they're out there changing, there might be seasons on Titan. And you can observe that. That's very cool. That's another strength of Sophia. Um, I talked about how you have to get above the atmosphere in order to see these wavelengths. Prior to Sophia um, and a couple of other small airborne missions, mostly the infrared has been dis- has been explored through satellites. Mm-hmm. And satellites have a very limited lifetime because of cryogens. They need cryogens to keep their instruments cold. Okay. Um, it's like liquid helium, liquid nitrogen, right? Uh-huh. That, that's right. And I, we didn't actually talk about that. We have cryogens on our instruments as well. If we're trying to see the heat signatures of things in space, our instruments need to have as little heat coming from them oh, as possible of course. in order to see those heat signatures. So we, yeah. so we cool them to just a few degrees or sometimes uh, millikelvin above zero, absolute zero. Oh, wow. Really? So, That's you know, possible? Yes, wow. yes. Fractions of a degree above absolute zero um, in order to see these heat signatures. So those satellite missions in the past have run out of cryogens after three or four years, mm. and then they can't observe in the infrared anymore. So uh, okay. not a lot of study had been done in these wavelengths in terms of variability over time of astronomical, astronomical objects. Mm-hmm. So SOFIA has a 20-year mission, planned mission, and with that, we're able to observe objects for a very long time period compared to what has been available yeah. in the past. Yeah. And so, yes, one of the great things that we can do is look at time variable phenomenon in the far infrared, which is something that has not really been explored very much. Cool. That is really cool about Sophia. You guys can switch out the instruments. You can add the cryogens to keep them cool. You can go home for repairs if yeah. you need to. And right? we can make new instruments, yeah. um, design new ones based on new technologies and uh, designed specifically to absorb different types of phenomena like hawk and magnetic fields. Yeah. 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 How cool. So yeah. how long are you guys going to be down in New Zealand? The aircraft will be an observatory will be operating for about six weeks. Oh, okay. June and July. Yeah. Most of July. Quite a while. You yeah. can do a lot of science in that time, right? Yeah. Nice. And one of the really cool things I think about the Titan observations we were talking about is Cassini, the, the spacecraft that was yeah. at Saturn. Now it's it's over. It had its you know its big finale, and now we're left with trying to observe and monitor Saturn and its moons 
from Earth. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. and the occultation method that Sophia is very special, uh, unique at being able to do is kind of one of those the only ways to continue to monitor and learn more about these seasonal changes that Jim was talking about. Yeah, yeah, and keep going, building on Cassini data, huh? Yeah. Very cool. So that's something you're excited for this summer? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be very exciting. Good. Well, come back and tell us what you find. Yeah, we'd love to. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. You've been listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Remember, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out our friends at Houston, we have a podcast. There's also Gravity Assist, This Week at NASA, and if you're a music fan, don't forget to check out Third Rock Radio. The best way to capture all the content is to subscribe to our omnibus RSS feed called NASA Casts, or visit the NASA app on iOS, Android, or anywhere you find your apps. 